0: With the New Books Network, this is New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Keith Simmons. Despite remaining ideological foes for the past 60 years, the United States and Cuba decided to finally normalize relations in December 2014. Among some of the details of these negotiations were that they occurred in Canada and that the Vatican, principally Pope Francis, were some of the individuals responsible for bringing about this change in relations. However, a new book published by William Leo Grand and Peter Kornbluth argue that, in fact, the United States and Cuba have maintained secret diplomatic negotiations throughout the Cold War. They also argue that, in some instances, these negotiations were certainly crucial in reducing tensions between both sides as well as ultimately preventing the Cold War in Latin America from becoming any hot, hot, hotter. William Leo Grand graciously offered to join New Books Network for an interview. William, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, I wonder if you could just start off by telling us um, how you became interested in uh, U.S. Latin American relations and in international politics.
1: Well, I was in graduate school in, at Syracuse University in upstate New York and uh, taking the courses in a variety of different areas of the world. And Latin America I found particularly fascinating because so much of politics in Latin America was very much conditioned on the country's relationship with the United States. The United States was such a dominant force in the region. Uh, and I found that interaction uh, really interesting and, and really compelling. And, of course, Cuba was a place where that interaction had brought us to the brink of nuclear war in 1962. And so I was attracted to the whole nexus of U.S.-Cuban relations.
0: And it seems really interesting that um, you and Peter stumbled on this particular subsection, I think, of of U.S.-Cuban relations. How exactly did you come across it?
1: Well, you know, the history of conflict between Cuba and the United States is is very well known. Uh, the break in relations in 1961, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. embargo, and all the conflicts that have happened uh, ever since, the various migration crises and so on. But um, we knew that there had been moments when Cuba and the United States had come close to normalizing relations. And we thought that that was an important story that had not really been told that uh, everybody knew about the public conflict and confrontation, but there was very little public awareness of the diplomatic efforts between the two countries, mostly because they had been conducted in secret over the years. So we began to look into this. We, uh, We knew from documents that had already been declassified that President Kennedy had made an initial outreach to Cuba that uh, Henry Kissinger had done the same, and um, then, of course, that Jimmy Carter made a a major effort to try to normalize the relationship. But as we dug into the history, we realized that every president since Eisenhower had talked to the Cubans about something. It wasn't always about trying to normalize relations. Sometimes it was about much narrower issues of mutual interest between the two countries. But over the years... Over a dozen agreements have been signed between Cuba and the United States. And we thought that was a fascinating story that people didn't know, and so we decided to write it.
0: And it also seems very pertinent when we think about how um, conservatives and, and individuals who are considered hawks uh, when it comes to foreign affairs um, suggest that we shouldn't talk with uh, countries like Iran or even um, like Cuba uh, right now because... There are certain conditions that have not been met. But when you look at individuals who are hardliners um, like Nixon and and like Ronald Reagan, uh, there seems to be a necessity to communicate with Cuba, even if it is with things just as simple as an agreement.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I think uh, both both Nixon uh, and Reagan were very hostile towards Cuba. Nixon in particular really disliked Fidel Castro from the meeting that they had in April 1959. Um, And yet both presidents were sort of pulled into a dialogue with Cuba because there were issues that could not be solved by the United States alone. We needed Cuba's cooperation. So in the Nixon administration, it was to stop airline hijackings, uh, which had become almost routine. And during the Reagan years, it was to solve first the migration issues between the two countries, and then later... uh, getting a peace agreement that led to the removal of Cuban troops from Angola.
0: And I think before we really start to dive into the characteristics of these presidents, because that's certainly one of the most interesting um, dynamics of the book, is how um, the mood seems to change between presidents, uh, despite Fidel being a constant um, in terms of the head of state in Cuba. Uh, I wonder if we could just, talk about um, the research process for a moment. Um, Peter Kornbluth, who is the co-author of this book, um, works for the National Security Archive um, and for the Cuba Documentation Project. So um, it seems as though he had a really kind of interesting um, insight into special documents that was necessary for this project.
1: Yes, he's been working on getting U.S. documents about Cuba declassified. For almost 20 years and so uh, he's a real specialist uh, when it comes to that and uh, he, he's an expert in how to file Freedom of Information Act requests and he was uh, really the prime mover when it came to identifying, locating uh, declassified documents and really staying on top of the declassification process so that when a new batch of documents was declassified we knew about it and we were able to take advantage of it right away. The other thing that we were able to do uh, to complement the documents that that we located was to interview uh, U.S. and Cuban negotiators who engaged in a lot of this dialogue. Uh, Most of them were very open and forthcoming, uh, being willing to talk to us and sort of give us their idea or their sense of what it was like to sit across the table from one another and engage these issues.
0: What was, what was some of the uh, general reaction that you got from individuals that you interviewed? Um, were, they, were they excited to, to talk about it? Were they a little bit apprehensive?
1: No, we didn't find anybody that was reluctant to, uh, to talk about it, which uh, surprised us a little bit. Um, both the Cuban and the U.S. diplomats, most of whom are retired by now, but not all of them, uh, were quite willing to, to talk about their role in this secret history, and I think because it was so secret, uh, many of them really wanted to get it on the record, so that uh, what had happened wouldn't be wouldn't be lost to time um, and so we just had very, very good luck in that regard and um, we were also in in some cases able to sort of tell one negotiator on one side what the other negotiator had said about a meeting and and uh, sometimes they were a little bit surprised at how
0: the other side had
1: interpreted what
0: had happened. And I think that that's part of what makes the book really intriguing um, in the sense of both sides needing to uh, communicate to one another. And so um, I guess if we start to dive into the book itself, uh, one of the interesting sections is uh, the very beginning when Castro initially comes to power and he's making his first visit to the United States. And that seems to be uh, one of the first instances in which the U.S. and Cuba are simply talking past each other. Uh, So I wonder if you could just recount some of those events uh, for our listeners. Sure. So
1: Castro came to the United States in April 1959, just a few months after he'd come to power in January. He brought with him a whole retinue of uh, economic advisors, and yet he told them on the way to the United States, They must not ask for aid from the United States. And they were really flabbergasted. They thought that was the whole purpose of the trip. But Castro said, no, I don't want to be seen as a Latin American supplicant coming to the United States and asking for things." And so his people uh, did, as they were told, and uh, they didn't ask the United States for assistance. On the U.S. side, there was a willingness to offer assistance But uh, or to give assistance, I should say, but only if the Cubans asked first. Um, So the U.S. uh, people were were under orders, basically, to wait until the Cubans asked and then also to run through a whole list of things that the Cubans ought to be doing in their economy if they were going to make good use of U.S. assistance. And so um, you had these very awkward meetings where um, the Cubans... uh, would describe what was going on in the economy, would not ask for assistance, and U.S. officials would sort of talk about how they thought the Cubans ought to manage their economy, but not offer assistance.
0: And I think once we start to get to the point where uh, Cuba and the U.S. finally break off with Eisenhower, um, limiting those relations in 1960, uh, it gets to a metaphor that's referred to in the introduction, that uh, there's a bridge that existed between Cuba and the United States. And it seems as though it's almost inevitable that it needs to be rebuilt, but there's never an ability to put um, a timeline on that in terms of when they would finally fully establish relations. And it certainly seems as though by the time we get to Kennedy, um, that, that moment in which uh, both sides finally reestablish themselves as pushed farther and farther away.
1: Well, I think that's right. Um, as Raul Castro said, you know, the, it was like a bridge in wartime and it was it was burned down. Um, and it has taken a very long time, half a century, to even really seriously begin the process of rebuilding it. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of factors go into that. One was simply the pride that the United States had and and the way that Fidel Castro offended Our pride by saying he didn't want to have a close relationship with the United States and by giving speeches in which he denounced the role the United States had played in Cuban history. Then, of course, uh, from 1960, 1961 onward, when Cuba becomes a strategic partner of the Soviet Union, then the whole set of Cold War issues uh, enter in here, and it was very hard for the United States politically to. Think about normalizing relations with Cuba as long as it remained a partner of the Soviet Union. And then after the Cold War, you had the domestic political situation in the United States where the Cuban-American community in Florida had become very powerful politically, both in terms of its votes and in terms of its money. And so U.S. presidents were reluctant to try to change the relationship with Cuba for fear of offending this very important and powerful political bloc.
0: And I think despite that fear of trying to offend that block, and especially as it starts to gain uh, momentum uh, going into the 60s, uh, there are certain instances, and two in particular, where Kennedy had to negotiate with Cuba in order to resolve tensions. Uh, the first one is regarding prisoners that were taken as a result of the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, and then certainly the one that the episode that I think is most well-known by uh, most of our listeners, which is uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us what your general uh, takeaway would be when you think about Kennedy and his efforts to try to negotiate with Castro.
1: Well, Kennedy felt very responsible for the failure of the Bay of Pigs. And so he felt responsible for trying to win the freedom of the over 1,000 Bay of Pigs veterans who had been captured when the Bay of pigs collapsed, and uh, he quietly and secretly really commissioned a U.S. a New York lawyer, James Donovan, to go to Cuba and negotiate their release, and that was that was successful, uh, and it was almost a prelude to uh, a broader negotiation about dialogue. Um, the missile crisis, of course, was the uh, moment of highest tension, and. Uh, In the midst of it, Kennedy decided that he would send a message to Castro uh, in a very circuitous way to see if he could convince Castro to throw the Soviets and their missiles out in exchange for reaching some kind of modus vivendi with the United States. But rather than convey that message directly so that Castro would know it was coming from the White House, uh, they had the Brazilians carry the message and pretend that it was their idea rather than coming from the White House. And um, it all happened by the time the Brazilian emissary got to Havana, the missile crisis was already winding down, so nothing ever really came. of
0: And so we have this effort by Kennedy, I think, to try to mend the fence uh, with Castro, particularly after Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, because that certainly seems to demonstrate the importance of negotiations, that um, without the two sides talking, it makes for a much more dangerous region um, and certainly a more dangerous security situation for both sides. Um, And towards that end, uh, the Johnson administration uh, employs um, a very interesting individual um, in terms of trying to maintain that dialogue in Lisa Powers. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about her for a little bit. So Lisa Howard,
1: actually. Um, Lisa Howard uh, was an ABC News correspondent who first went to Cuba during the Kennedy administration. And she was an important intermediary carrying messages back and forth uh, during the last year of the Kennedy administration when it looked like there was going to be a bilateral negotiation about trying to normalize relations. Um, In fact, the agenda for uh, direct meetings between U.S. and Cuban diplomats had just been set when Kennedy was assassinated. And President Johnson backed away from that immediate uh, interest in in dialogue. But Lisa Howard continued to play this intermediary role, carrying messages back and forth, and in particular conveyed a message from Fidel Castro to Lyndon Johnson. offering uh, talks to try to improve the relations and promising that Cuba would not do anything that would make Johnson's life more difficult in the 1964 presidential election.
0: That was honestly one of the most interesting takeaways, I think, of this book, uh, that Castro would promise not to really do anything provocative to try to aid Johnson. Uh, I guess seeing him as an individual who could potentially be someone he could work with Um, simply because I think he was part of of Kennedy's previous administration. Um, And I guess it also seems as though Castro is willing to um, behave, in a sense, so that uh, Johnson could see that he's someone who can promise something and then keep that promise.
1: I think that's right, and I think that uh, Castro also saw Barry Goldwater as a danger, Goldwater ran in 1964 on a very hard-line Cold War platform, and I think that Castro realized that uh, U.S.-Cuban relations were going to be a lot better off with Lyndon Johnson in the White House than Barry Goldwater. He had the same exact attitude uh, at the end of the Carter administration when in 1980 uh, he was willing to end the migration crisis precisely because he didn't want to hurt Jimmy Carter's re-election chances because he was worried about Ronald Reagan,
0: and it seems as though when we start to get further into Johnson's administration, um, there emerge there emerges rather two particular points uh, for both sides that seem to be necessary in order for them to finally mend that bridge. Um, and for Cuba, it's the end of the embargo uh, that was. Uh, established by the Kennedy administration. And uh, for the United States, it was crucial that Cuba ceased um, exporting uh, communist revolution, certainly throughout Latin America, and I think as we'll discuss in a few moments, uh, Angola and their uh, invasion uh, of that country. Uh, To what extent do you think they finally get to that uh, reproach moment, um, in Johnson's administration?
1: Well, I, they don't really make a lot of progress during the Johnson administration. Uh, the, you know, the Cuban position was very much that the embargo was the centerpiece of the conflict and needed to be lifted. The Johnson administration actually uh, intensified the embargo by trying to extend it multilaterally. Johnson recruited Latin America in 1964 to join the embargo and lobbied in Europe to have European countries join the embargo as well. And it it is the case that the principal concern the United States had in those years was Cuba's export of revolution to the rest of of Latin America. It's only at the very end of the Johnson administration when it's clear that all these efforts at pressure are not going to actually overthrow the Cuban government, that U.S. officials begin to think, about alternative strategies, and there's a long, long policy paper that was written right at the end of the Johnson administration that essentially concluded that um, Castro was not going to fall as a result of U.S. economic pressure. Uh, The idea of an invasion of Cuba by the United States was too dangerous and too costly, and therefore the only sensible alternative was to try to reach some kind of an accommodation. Uh, And the problem, of course, was that um, Richard Nixon, won the 1968 election. And so that policy paper really was put on a shelf.
0: And what I think is curious about uh, Nixon's election is that uh, he's known as the president who uh, opened China um, with the expression that only Nixon could go to China. Um, And it also seems as though Nixon could be the only one to go to Cuba. Uh, But for some reason, that just doesn't seem to happen. I wonder if you could just talk about that Um, as to why Nixon sort of refused to respond to positive language coming out of Havana.
1: Nixon just really thought Fidel Castro was a dangerous person. Uh, When they met in 1959, in April, uh, during Castro's trip to the United States, uh, Nixon thought he was naive, uh, if not a communist, uh, thought that he was also, however, uh, a very charismatic figure, a leader of men. Nixon put it, and that he was going to cause the United States trouble. And pretty much from that moment on, Nixon was uh, one of the main proponents of U.S. covert operations to try to overthrow Castro. Uh, there comes a moment in the Nixon administration when Henry Kissinger says to Nixon, "Listen, we're under a lot of pressure from Latin America to, to lift the embargo. We're under pressure, growing pressure from Congress to lift the embargo. Uh, it's really hurting our relations around the world. Maybe it's time to start thinking about a different policy towards Cuba. And Nixon says, I don't want to hear it. Don't ever bring it up again. Uh, So Nixon is just absolutely adamant that he's not going to improve the relationship with Cuba. When the whole issue of the anti-hijacking agreement comes up, uh, he only agrees to it Uh, with the understanding that it will not be an opening to broader negotiations or an improvement in relations, that that the United States is just going to try to solve this one problem.
0: And it certainly seems as though uh, the negotiating process doesn't really see much of an improvement uh, during Ford's administration, despite the fact that he retained uh, Kissinger as as part of his uh, foreign policy staff.
1: Well, the difference with the Ford administration is that President Ford listens to Kissinger when Kissinger makes the argument that we ought to try to improve relations with Cuba. And he agrees to let Kissinger go ahead and make the effort. And so Kissinger sends uh, Frank Mankiewicz uh, to Cuba uh, with a message for Castro uh, that essentially says we're willing to open a dialogue if you're interested. And Castro writes a note back and says, yes, we're willing as well so the result is a series of meetings between U.S. and Cuban diplomats in various odd locations from LaGuardia Airport to the Pierre Hotel in New York um, in which they begin to lay out an agenda of issues uh, that would need to be uh, dealt with in order to normalize the relationship. And that process was relatively slow moving. It started in the summer of 1974 and lasted through um, really January of 1976. But the last few months, in the last few months, it was really uh, undercut
0: by the Cuban involvement in Angola. And the Cuban involvement in Angola uh, carries over into Carter's administration as well. And what seems to be interesting about uh, Carter's presidency and its relationship to Cuba uh, is that Castro characterizes him as the most honest individual and the most honest president that he felt as though he could deal with. Yet Angola was still such an obstacle. Um, I wonder if you could just explain some of the basics about the situation in Angola and how that sort of tied uh, Carter's hands despite perhaps wanting to improve relations with Cuba. So uh,
1: Portugal decided in 1975 that it was going to give Angola its independence and that set off a civil war inside Angola between various factions uh, that lasted over into 1976. Uh, South Africa, fearful that uh, a left-wing government would come to power in Angola, South Africa invaded Angola in uh, the fall of 1975. Uh, the Angolans asked for Cuban support and Cuba sent 36,000 combat troops and repelled the South African invasion. And those troops, uh, not all of them, but a large portion of those troops stayed in Angola for a number of years thereafter. Uh, And so that was why Kissinger broke off the the dialogue in, in 1976. For the Carter administration, initially, they did not see Angola as an unsurmountable obstacle to improving relations. But late in 1977 and early 1978, the Cubans also sent troops into Ethiopia when the Ethiopian government was attacked by an invasion from neighboring Somalia. So that really convinced the Carter administration that the only way that we could normalize relations with Cuba was if Cuba got out of Africa. And although talks went on for uh, really almost the entire time of Carter's administration, a whole, more than a dozen secret meetings, uh, every single one of those meetings got stuck on the same dilemma. The United States said, we'll normalize relations if you get out of Africa. And the Cubans said, um, you know, who are you to tell us to get out of Africa? We're there at the invitation of legitimate government.
0: And so despite these efforts, I think, for the Carter administration, uh, we eventually have Ronald Reagan uh, come into the presidency. Uh, How would you characterize uh, Reagan and Bush uh, with their perspective and approach to Cuba?
1: Well, Reagan was a cold warrior, of course, and he came to office saying he was going to restore the power and dominance of the United States globally. And his initial concern focused on Central America, And he very much blamed Cuba for the revolutionary movements that were gaining ground in Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, There were some initial talks between the Reagan administration and Cuba about Central America, but they really amounted to the Reagan administration telling the Cubans, stop helping revolutionaries in Central America or else. And the Cubans just don't respond well to those kinds of threats, and and so nothing really came of, of those talks. But the Reagan administration uh, found, as Kissinger had found, that there were some issues that couldn't be resolved without Cuban cooperation. And so the first negotiations that were successful between the Reagan administration and Cuba focused on migration issues and trying to regularize the process of migration uh, in the wake of the 1980 Mariel boat lift in which 125,000 Cubans came to the United States on small boats from Florida um, completely in a completely uncontrolled and illegal fashion. So the Reagan administration held migration talks with the Cubans. We reached a migration agreement that was really a milestone in the migration relationship. And then the Reagan administration turned to negotiating with Cuba about Southern Africa. And finally, after eight years of talks, reached an agreement whereby the Cubans withdrew from Angola, the South African troops withdrew from... Namibia on Angola's border, uh, and Namibia became an independent country. And, and so really a multi-dimensional conflict in the region was settled as a result of those negotiations.
0: And so I think moving into um, the 90s and, and the 2000s, um, it seems as though by this point it's very much uh, evident that, that Castro has the strongest staying power, um, with respect to Cuba and the United States, and that he's going to remain that that constant for uh, Cuban politics. Uh, so at any point in time, do presidents like uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush, do they bring in any particular individuals to try to deal with Cuba and try to evolve um, that relationship to the next level? Well, you know, in in the early 90s,
1: it wasn't at all clear that Castro was was going to be around for a long time. When the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the Cuban economy was thrown into a terrible crisis. Gross domestic product fell by 35%. And so there actually was a a feeling in the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, that um, the Cuban government might finally be overthrown. And so there were efforts to tighten the embargo strengthen enforcement of the embargo in the, hope that, uh, in the hope that this government would finally fall. Of course, it didn't, and uh, the Clinton administration, uh, when it came in, was once again open to uh, beginning not so much a dialogue about normalizing relations, but rather simply to try to improve uh, the atmosphere of the relationship. Then you had the 1994 Balsero crisis, or the Rafters crisis, when thousands of Cubans, because the economic situation was so bad, thousands of Cubans got on these rickety rafts and sailed across the Florida Strait to the United States. And so that migration crisis led to uh, two migration agreements negotiated between the Clinton administration and Cuba, one in 1994, then one again in 1995. And then later in the administration, they uh, negotiated uh, an agreement of cooperation around stopping narcotics trafficking through the Caribbean.
0: So how would you also characterize uh, the administration of George W. Bush?
1: You know, George W. Bush probably was less open to dialogue with Cuba than any of his predecessors. Um, He also, like his father, thought that uh, the Cuban government was not sustainable, that it was going to collapse. And his theory was that uh, once Fidel Castro died, that the regime couldn't survive without it, that it was so built around this one individual that as soon as he left the political scene, uh, that would be the end. And, of course, by that time, Castro was in his late 70s, early 80s, and, um, you know, obviously, he wasn't going to be around forever, and so the expectation was that in just a few years, this regime would collapse, and so there was no need to to actually talk to him. Um, Some cooperation did continue, but it was cooperation that had been established previously around law enforcement issues and particularly uh, counter-narcotics and some cooperation on terrorism issues. Um, But beyond that, there really wasn't very much at all. Then, of course, Castro got sick and stepped down and was replaced by his brother. And lo and behold, the Cuban government did not collapse, but the transition turned out to be perfectly smooth.
0: And that brings us right into uh, the Obama administration, where uh, it seems as though some of the most uh, visible efforts or the most visible movements have taken place. Um, How would you assess Obama's ability to... Uh, bring the United States and Cuba closer together um, by working with Raul Castro. And in what areas do you think there needs to be improvement uh, in order for that negotiation process to continue?
1: So although it took President Obama six years to actually get it done, um, he has made more progress than uh, any of his ten predecessors in terms of rebuilding that bridge between the two countries. Um, The announcement last December 17th that uh, both sides were committed to uh, reestablishing normal diplomatic relations and then moving forward to normalize the bilateral relationship generally. Um, It was really quite dramatic, and it's the first time a president has publicly said that he wanted to do that since Jimmy Carter was in the White House. Um, There's been some progress already on a number of issues, and... I think the general expectation here in Washington is that we'll have an announcement sometime in the next couple of weeks about the restoration of diplomatic relations. Um, The Cuban interest section here in Washington is putting up a new flagpole, which suggests that uh, they think they're going to be able to raise the Cuban flag there pretty soon. Uh, But, of course, there are a lot of other issues between the two countries. The biggest one is the economic embargo because that is still in place despite Obama's efforts to improve the relationship. The embargo was um, codified in law in 1996 and so it takes an act of Congress now to get rid of it. And There are a number of other policies and programs the United States has that are in effect leftovers from the old policy of regime change. Uh, that you know, will need to be dealt with before we can say the relationship is truly normal. But there are working groups now of diplomats from both countries who are systematically working their way through a number of decisions.
0: And it's certainly interesting that you mentioned uh, the necessity for Congress to override uh, the largest stumbling block for normalizing relations, which is the embargo. Um, how exactly would you describe to someone uh, who may not be really familiar with the Cuban lobby, um, their their positions, some, some of their objectives, and their ability to perhaps influence um, the negotiation path between Cuba and the United States.
1: Well, what's interesting today is how much the Cuban-American community in Florida has changed. In the 1990s, the community was not entirely monolithic, but... Really dominated by conservative Republicans who were opposed to any kind of improvement in U.S.-Cuban relations. But over the years, the community has become much more heterogeneous as more and more people have come from the island at the rate of about 30 or 40,000 a year. People who've come more recently have come principally for economic reasons rather than political ones. They have stayed in touch with their family on the island. They travel back and forth. They send remittances to family members on the island. And so for those Cuban-Americans, having a more normal relationship between the two governments is a good thing, not a bad thing. So we see in opinion polls, gradually the community has become more and more and more moderate in terms of its attitudes about U.S.-Cuban relations to the point that a narrow majority of Cuban-Americans actually approved of President Obama's decision to normalize the relationship. So the influence of that lobby in Congress has really gone down pretty dramatically. But a number of the members of Congress who are Cuban-Americans have as their constituents that older, more conservative element of the community. And so people like uh, Ileana Rosleitinen, Mario Díaz-Balart on the Senate side, uh, Robert Menendez, Marco Rubio, uh, they are taking a very tough line and saying they're going to do everything they can to prevent uh, Obama from carrying out his policy. And there are a number of things they can do to slow it down or, or even throw a monkey wrench. into it.
0: To what extent um, do you think that the Cuba issue and uh, Latin America can sort of take a more um, front seat role, I guess, is is the way that I would describe it Um, in foreign policy debates for the upcoming presidential election. um, I think a lot of individuals who study uh, Latin America and and Latin American affairs uh, would certainly argue that uh, it's usually not really discussed as as intensively as uh, places like the Middle East or Asia. So do you see this issue kind of coming into the fore or would it be potentially overshadowed, overshadowed rather by um, other events around the world. You know, the only time
1: foreign policy issues play a major role in presidential campaigns is when we're in the midst of a war uh, or a major, major crisis. And the reason Latin America has not been at the center of recent presidential campaigns is because we haven't been at war in Latin America since the conflicts in Central America back in the 1980s. Um, And there haven't been major crises there. I don't think that Cuba will be a major issue in the upcoming presidential election. Right now, uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Jeb Bush are talking about the Cuba issue, but I think they're trying to appeal to conservative Cuban-American Republicans who will vote in the Florida primary, which is going to be an important one uh, for all three of those candidates. Uh, Once we get into the general campaign for the presidency, I don't think Cuba will be a major issue at all. I mean, there's not very many people in the United States who are going to choose their presidential candidate based on their position on Cuba. If you look at the last election in 2012, the debate between Obama and Romney on foreign policy was held in Florida, and the issue of Cuba never even came up.
0: Really? I'd never really thought about that. I thought it'd at least come up uh, once given the um, area that it was taking place. So it's fascinating to hear that it actually never uh, was discussed at any point in time.
1: Not in, the, not in that debate,
0: no. Wow, it's very, very interesting. Uh, well, William, we've certainly taken up um, a lot of your time today, but before we go, um, are there any new uh, projects or uh, research topics that uh, perhaps you or Peter, are currently exploring? Well, you know, uh, this book came out last October.
1: Uh, and so on the one hand, it was pretty good timing since we were talking about the history of dialogue just before the president announced uh, uh, that he'd been engaged in his secret talks with Cuba. But we, at that point, did not have the story of the secret Obama talks. So what we've been doing since December is is doing research on that. And we have put together a, an epilogue chapter to the book, which will appear in the paperback edition coming out in the fall that tells the story of Obama's secret negotiations with Cuba.
0: Wow, certainly looking forward to that, um, and I think simply because this is one of the most dynamic moments uh, for that relationship, and I think when uh, things start to open up and, and the possibility of travel uh, and other types of economic exchange that Uh, We certainly will draw ever closer to Cuba, um, I think certainly since the the mid-20th century. Uh, William, again, we we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, speak with us today. Uh, William Leo Grand and Peter Cornbluth are the authors of the book Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. It's published by the University of North Carolina Press. And there's a paperback version, which is coming out in fall of this year. So, William, thank you again for your time. My pleasure. Once again, this has been Keith Simmons with New Books and Latin American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Until next time.